a really interesting hour of transition. Um, and as season as rocky as this last season has been, it, there's a certain kind of gift and an opportunity that comes with this kind of season. I don't know about how you guys have been navigating this season, but what it does for me is it, it strips away all the peripheral secondary questions and it kind of confronts you with the main issues. And so what this season has been doing is stripping me away of all the different kind of like secondary, not so important, more trivial, more secondary things that often occupy my mind and my attention. And it, it begs like a more important question. And so some of the questions that I've been asking myself this season have been like, so what is this all about? You know, like, what are you after? What are you highlighting? What's important to you? Because there's too many things to keep track of. There's too many things that are asking for your attention, too many things that are kind of pulling at you in this kind of season of transition, and you don't want to be occupied with things that aren't occupying God's heart. So my main question this season has been, what do you want me to focus on? What is important to you in this season? What are you trying to do? And I know that I'm not the only person who asks these kind of questions. Um, you know, in Matthew 22, we see an instance where Jesus himself is surrounded uh, by these teachers of the law, these PhDs of their time, right? So these are the really, really smart dudes, the Shilamites of their time, and they're surrounding Jesus, and they're asking him a question, right? Uh, and this is the question um, that they ask. If I turn on this thing, I think it'll work. Yes. Uh, could mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. So this is a question that they asked Jesus. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Basically, they're asking, summarize this. This little thing we have right here, the hundred and some commandments that we have here, all the, all the you know, talks and all the parables and all the rules, can you tell me, like, summary of this? They're asking him to distill all of the law into one little blip. And this is how Jesus replies. He says, mm, that is... Not what he says. There we go. Uh, Jesus replies, and he says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and the greatest commandment, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. He's saying that's the most important thing that you should be getting out of this book. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. Often when we think about love, the word love, we kind of like, like, eh, it's like just whatever, right? It's like an optional, like, we, we see it as something very abstract, very like, oh, it's just a warm, fuzzy feeling that I have, you know, in my heart when we sing the right song and, and the worship leader is good and the light is dim, you know what I mean? Like, we, that's how we see love, but this entire book is actually about this thing called love. And it's not just about a warm, fuzzy feeling. The way that God describes loving the Lord, it means with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. That means with all your volition, with all of your actions, with all your emotions, and also all of your intellect. It encompasses all of that. So it's not just, ah, I kind of feel like I'm in love with Jesus today. It's not that. It is something so much deeper, so much more all-encompassing, uh, that your life just funnels into when you love the Lord your God. It means that there's a groundedness and understanding of the word. You cannot say, I just love the Lord, but I don't really like his word. I don't really spend time in the word. I don't really know his word. You can't do that. These are the words of God. You cannot love the Lord apart from this. 
So there is a groundedness and an understanding of the word. There is, there's a response with your emotions. God is an emotional God. This stuff is not just for chicks. Like, I need to make this clear because I think sometimes there's this preconceived notion that all the emotional stuff, it, it's for the women's ministry. You know, it's for the girls. And the dudes get, you know, the, the, the logical, let's memorize the Bible. No, this is for every believer. If you're a believer in Christ, you have to love the Lord with all your mind, yes, and all of your heart. It means that you cannot just know the Bible intellectually. Your heart has to follow as well. Your heart has to follow as well. And if you encounter the God that is within these pages, there is, you have no choice but to burn in love for God. Your emotions are going to follow. And it's not just that. There's also a call to action and repentance. It means that there's an understanding that just an emotional response and just an intellectual response is not enough. Your actions, your life has to follow suit as well. So it's not just this inner working. It's just all in the supernatural, all in the inner life. But outside, people have no idea that I love Jesus. My life looks no different than my neighbor's. That's not the kind of faith that we're called to. We're called to love the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and also with your actions. It's a, it's a posture of the heart. And I see in me sometimes when things get rough, I, I see myself gravitating to a, a like, look, Lord, yeah, things are really hard. When I, you just need to tell me what to do. Okay, I, I just need option, this is option A, option B, option C. Just tell me which one to circle, and we're good. And the Lord is after something much deeper than that. He's not just going to give you a shortcut to the answer. Perhaps what the Lord is doing this season is putting his finger on something much deeper that is being revealed right now through these circumstances. It's not despite the circumstances. It's because of the circumstances that certain things surface up in our hearts, and God thinks to himself, this is the moment that I was waiting for. This is the opportunity that I was waiting for. Let's address this thing. So sometimes when we're walking through hard seasons, we're like, I just want to make it through. Let's make it quick. Let's make it easy. And let's move on with life. And God's not thinking that way. God's like, I've been waiting for this moment. When things around you shake, when things that were certain are now uncertain, and I've been waiting for this moment to address something really important. And so he sees things sometimes in a very different way from the way that we see things. We're just like, oh, I just want to make it through. Let's just plow through and let's get to the important stuff. And God might be saying, this is the important stuff. This season is crucial for you guys. And so as I've been praying for our church just in the last season, my sense is, yes, things are really hard, and I'm not going to discount that. But I feel like this excitement is coming from the Lord. It's like, I've been waiting for this time. Let's talk. Now it's time to talk. That's time to deal with certain things that you can bury under a ton of activity. You can bury it under a lot of to-do lists. You can bury this thing for as long as you want, but there's going to be a moment of shaking when things are going to come up from within you, when there's going to be an understanding and an awareness that there's things that God needs to deal with, and that is the moment that God has been waiting for. And so I believe that this is a time and a season for a church where we have an amazing opportunity to set the trajectory of our church. We're setting down the tracks. You know the train tracks? You can go 100 miles an hour, but in the opposite direction, right? But I feel like this season, God is laying down tracks and setting a trajectory for us as a church, how we respond to as a church, what we uphold as important in this season 
as a church, it's going to define where we are as a church in the next year, five years, 10, maybe 20 years. I feel like this is such a crucial season for a church. So I'm not saying that it's easy. I'm saying it's important. This season is important. It's going to be life-defining, direction-defining, destiny-defining. And this idea of love is not just found, you know, in the Gospels. This is what Paul refers to in 1 Corinthians 13 when he's talking to a church that is squabbling amongst themselves. So what's the most important gift right now? And this is what Paul says in the middle of that. If I speak the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. It means you can be as gifted as you could be. Like you could be the most gifted person in the room. And it doesn't mean anything unless you have love at the center of what you're doing. He goes on to say, if I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I had a faith that can move mountains, imagine if I were to say mountain, move. Even something small, like air conditioning, move. And it moved. Like something in you would be like, oh my goodness, this woman is gifted or powerful or something. But it says like, even if I were to manage to do that, and if I didn't have love, it means absolutely nothing. It says, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and surrender my body to the flames, but have not love, I gain nothing. It means you can be selfless. You can be Mother Teresa times a million. Like you can give up every second of your life serving somebody else. And yet if you have not love, no matter how selfless you are, no matter how service-oriented you are, it doesn't matter. You are nothing. You gain nothing. So the matter of love is crucial. So many things hinge on this idea of love, which is why for the last three weeks I've been preaching about restoring first love. Restoring first love. We are being given a choice in this season, and love is never the easy choice. It's always going to be inconvenient. It's never going to come very naturally, like this is not the default of our hearts often. I don't know about you guys. Maybe I'm just talking about myself, but I don't naturally gravitate towards let me do what's loving. Usually it takes the Holy Spirit like, kind of dragging me in that direction, but in my sinful heart, I'm like, no, I want what's comfortable. No, I want what benefits me. What am I going to get out of this? You know, how does this benefit me? And that's just the sinful state of my heart. And it takes the Holy Spirit to bring me into that place where love becomes a viable option and a choice for me. So before running full steam ahead, 100 miles an hour in the wrong direction, I feel like this is a season for us to take a pause, to hit the brakes, and for us to get some important things first down before we start building, before we start moving forward, before even... You know, in, in a few weeks, we're going to have, you know, Hongdae coming to this location as well. Before even that happens, we're being given a window of opportunity to ser- set our hearts right, set the foundational things right, even before we start building. Now, this topic, it comes from, the, as a response to a prophetic word that um, was preached to us about two years ago. I don't know if many of you guys were here two years ago. There was a speaker uh, who came and, and spoke at our leadership retreat two years ago, almost to the day. Um, and he spoke about the beauty and the worth of Christ. He talked about the beauty of fasting and longing for his return. And then in his last message that he preached at our Sunday service, he preached on the idea that you can actually have a vibrant, growing church that is 
that has people just flowing in and flowing out. And your name can be known all through the city as, yeah, you guys are New Philly. You can have all those things. And, 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 and you can go in this route for a long time without realizing that you've forgotten your first love. You can actually do this. There's formulas in ministry, like if you have a certain amount of people, a certain type of person, a certain kind of building, a certain kind of music, you can fabricate these things. And in your mind, you feel like, oh, we, we are very much in love with God because we're doing his work. Because don't you see how many people come through our doors? Because you see how many baptisms we had last year? You know, you can justify all these things and make these things be an indicator of where your hearts are at. But you can actually do all these things and your heart be very cold, very apathetic, very far from the Lord. And he was, saying, he was giving us a very strong exhortation. He was saying, don't forget your first love. This is what matters the most. You can do a lot of things well, but don't make this a secondary thing. Don't make this something that is an afterthought. Make this a primary thing. And this, uh, this comes from a letter written by Jesus. So if you look in your Bible, you read it and it was in red, right? It means it's from the mouth of God, right? And so these, this is a letter of Jesus by Jesus to this church in Ephesus. And this is the, the church in Ephesus. I'm just going to show you a few pictures. These are the ruins of Ephesus. It's a city that's still there today, but only ruins remain. It's a city that is now in modern-day Turkey. And even just by seeing the mass size of the ruins that remain today, those little dots are actually people. That's just to give you a scale. This was a massive city. This was the metropolis of its time. And now all that remains are ruins. But even by that, you see the magnitude of this, ch uh, of this church, of the city. Th this is obviously not a picture. This is um, just an artist representation of what the city might have looked like back in that time. So we're talking about a letter that is written to a church that is influential in the most influential and affluent city of that time. This is the mega church of that time. This is the happening church, the church that everybody looks at is like, I want to be like the church in Ephesus. This is a thriving church. God grew it supernaturally, built it through the breathing of the Spirit. And it is to this church that Jesus addresses this letter, this first letter in the book of Revelation. And this is what the letter says to the angel of the church in Ephesus, write, these are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. So Jesus is saying, this is an amazing church. You have been keeping your doctrine free from heresy, you have spiritual discernment to tell who is from the Lord and who isn't. You are unafraid to confront the impurity that is happening within the church and also outside of the church in the world. You have done this in a steadfast way, so it's not like you're going hard after this and then you fizzle out, but there's been a perseverance and a steadfastness in the way that you have gone after all these things. You bear the marks of persecution and marginalization for the sake of of the gospel, so they're doing this at a very high cost. And in the midst of it all, you've remained strong and you've remained steadfast. But this is what he adds. Yet, I hold this against you. You have forsaken 
your first love. Full stop. A lot of really good things happening in this church, but there's one thing, one very important thing that can trump all those really good things, and it is the fact that they have forgotten their first love. And instead of moving on and saying, look, I know that this is not that important, so just keep doing what you're doing. It's probably going to cover for the fact that you have forgotten your first love. No, this is what Jesus says to continue. He says, remember the height from which you have fallen. First thing is you have to remember and you have to realize the fact that you have fallen a long ways off. Second is you need to repent and not just intellectually, not just saying, look, I'm sorry, God, I'll try to do better. You actually have to go back and do the things you did at first. You have to act out on this. It's going to require application. It's going to require change and adaptation. It's going to require a big change and a shift in their direction as a church. It, it might require them to hit the brakes and take a moment and a pause to reevaluate what they built. It might take that. And I wonder what this kind of exhortation might have sounded to a church that was at the height of its influence, at the height of its like, but, but do you see our outreach ministry? Do you see how thriving our children's ministry is? Do you see how many people we've evangelized in this city? Like, you cannot be telling me that the fact that I lost my first love is more important than all this amazing work that we're doing for the ministry. I'm thinking that's what it sounded like to them because if I were to be honest, that's what it sounded like to me two years ago. We were like, man, we need Philly. Like, we are forced to be reckoned with. Like, there's, we are unstoppable. We are on fire for the Lord. There's nothing that's going to stop us at this point. And I didn't realize that there had been such a blindness in my heart because of the arrogance, perhaps because of the good works that we have been doing, because of the magnitude and the branding and just how all the other churches are like, oh, you're from New Philadelphia. You're from New Philadelphia. You get to live and worship in that place. And I would get these, and they would do something to my heart. I would be like, oh, yeah, I'm from New Philadelphia. That's right. There was a blindness that came to me because we were doing so well, because we had such influence, because we kept planting church after church after church every year. And in my, in my heart, if I were to be honest, I thought, well, yeah, maybe it's an important thing, but let's move on and just keep going the direction we're going. We seem to be going the right direction without taking heed to this really important exhortation. Now, on the slide that I just showed you, right, it said, do the things you did at first. So we're going to take a pause. We're going to jump to the book of Acts um, and see what actually they did at first. So the, the church in Ephesus, it's mentioned in the book of Acts chapter 19, and it says, some Jews went around driving out evil spirits. They tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. And they would say, in the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. Seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish priest, a chief Jewish priest, were doing this. So these are people who are not really Christian. They don't really believe in Jesus, but they see the apostles are doing these signs and wonders in the name of Jesus. And they're like, that's the magic formula. That's the abracadabra, right? I just need to say in the name of Jesus, and then all of a sudden these miracles happen. So they didn't really even believe in Jesus. They didn't have a relationship with Jesus, and they were just using this as a magic formula. And then one day, this is the trippy part, right? An evil spirit answered them. 
right? And then the evil spirit said, Jesus, I know. Paul, I know about. But who are you? Right? When you're being told off by an evil spirit, you know, there's something going on, right? Then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them and overpowered them all. And he gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. This one man with this one evil spirit beat seven grown men and had them running away from the scene, fleeing naked and bleeding. So this is like a big deal, right? It's, it's, it's pretty crazy to think that just one person could beat seven grown men. And it was all just the evil spirit. And then what happened as a response to this, this was not a planned evangelical, you know, even evangelism strategy, but what happened was word got out, right? And what happened when this became known to the Jews and the Greeks living in Ephesus, first they were all seized with fear. They realized that the name of Jesus was actually a big deal. It wasn't just this abracadabra magic formula. There's actual power in the name of Jesus. And he's recognized by even demons. Second is, the name of the Lord was held in high honor. So they know that they can't just play around with this name of Jesus. If, if you were to say it in Korean, I don't know if there's an equivalent in, in um, English. It's like, you know when you look at somebody and you don't take them seriously? It's like, like it's like, yeah, whatever. Like, yeah. But it's just JP, you know? Like, you know, like <laughs> I mean... That's an example, guys. Anyway, but if I were to hold him and hold his name in high honor, I would never say that, right? I would never say it from a mic, from a platform, right? Uh, so I would never say that if I held his name in high honor. Like, you don't mess around with JP. You don't mess around with his name. You don't toss his name around. And so that's what people really... <laughs> I'm so sorry, JP. This is being recorded. Awesome. Yes. Yes. I have one week to, to get my kicks in. Um, so the name of the Lord Jesus was now held in high honor. You realize that you can't just throw around this name. Like, you've got to take it seriously, and you've got to take his word seriously. And as a result of that, many who believed, they now came and openly confessed what they had done. So this struck them with the fear of the Lord, where they know that they cannot hide, they cannot live a double life, and expect to get away with it. They cannot fool the Lord. They cannot mess around with this. And so as a response, they came and they openly confessed what they had done. They realized that the Lord is someone to be reckoned with, that he knows all, that there's nowhere to hide, nowhere to flee from his presence, that he can see to the depths and understand you better than you understand yourself, and that this God cannot coexist with compromise and with mixture. This is a God that demands full allegiance and obedience. In trust and in brokenness, they laid down their pride, their reputation, and they came and they openly confessed what they had done. Now, a number who had practiced sorcery, they brought in their scrolls together and they burned them publicly. When they calculated the value of the scrolls, it came out to be 50,000 drachmas. Now, before you're like, what? The scrolls have to do with anything, and what is a drachma, right? So this is their object of worship, and this fifty thousand drachmas is not like a like like chump change. This is anywhere from five point five million dollars to one point five billion dollars today. So this is a big deal. It's a lot of money, and it's a very costly 
and sacrificial step of faith and obedience that they took in order to be blameless before the Lord. So at great personal expense, they burned everything that would tie them to the Lord and the, the sorcery that they were practicing before. These were not people that were lukewarm. These were not people who were like, eh, maybe I'll check out a church here and there and I'll see where it's at. They were like, I'm going to burn this $1,000 scroll in the middle of the public square and I'm not going to mess around with this anymore. You can't unburn something, right? It is an all-in step of faith where there's no turning back. So they're closing the back door. They're closing the, their plan B. They're saying, I am all in. This is the kind of allegiance that this God deserves. And in this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. So this is the kind of church that was started in the city of Ephesus. It's not a little, tiny, little church. It is a church that because of the sign of power and supernatural workings, it blew up almost overnight, and it bankrupted the pagan idol industry of the city. The city was known to be kind of the city where Artemis, or, or Diana in her, in her Roman uh, name, was, um, was worshipped. This was the city that worshipped Artemis. And almost overnight, this pagan idol industry went bankrupt. That's the power of the gospel hitting a megachurch, sorry, me, hitting a metropolis in a city like this. Now, so if we were to go back to the passage in, Ro, uh, in Revelations 2, it continues on to say, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is something that is repeated all seven times in all seven letters in the book of Revelation. That tells you that the churches aren't listening, right? If you have to repeat yourself seven times, if you have to repeat yourself seven times, if you have to repeat yourself, some, you know what I mean? If you have to repeat yourself seven times, it means that people are not tracking with you, right? And so the Spirit of the Lord has to repeat that seven times because they apparently do not have an ear to hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. That's repeated seven times. And then it says, to him who overcomes, to him who overcomes. This is a really important phrase because I'm not going to lie to you it's going to be a fight, and it's going to be a struggle, and there's going to be days where the Lord doesn't look that desirable to you. We're following Jesus and reading his word and praying in his name is not going to look as fun as you thought it once did. And there's going to be days where you have to pay the cost, where you have to be looked at in your workplace in a different way. We have to say no to certain different things in order to say yes to the Lord. It's going to take an overcoming. It's going to be a fight. There's going to be a wrestle and a struggle, and it will not be easy. And this is because the default of our hearts isn't just to worship the Lord. That's not where we naturally gravitate. We're going to have to battle distraction. We're going to have to battle offense, temptation, apathy, bitterness, the natural wearing down of time. We're going to have to work through all those things, and it's going to require a fight to remain in that place where you are still on fire for the Lord. It's not going to happen accidentally. If you were to just coast and just assume that once, once saved, always saved, and now I'm set for life and I'm, I'm down this path, you're going to very quickly realize that that's not as easy, you know, that's not how it goes. It's not as easy as that. It's going to require a struggle. Living your daily life and staying in love 
Well, the Lord is going to require a fight. So that is the bad news. There will be a fight, but the good news is that Jesus has won this fight, and he empowers you to do the same. So before we kind of jump on this, okay, all right. So now we know that we have to go back to our first love. Now let's try really hard, all right? I'm going to try really hard to love the Lord with all my heart and all my soul and all my strength and all my mind. That's not, that's not how it works. Have you guys tried that? I've tried it. It lasts for how long? 20 minutes, right? Oh, wow, we have somebody who, it lasts two days for you. Uh, 20 minutes, I, I mean, tops, right? I try to love the Lord really hard, and it lasts like 20 minutes or so, right? That's not how it works. That's not how, how thank the Lord, that's not how it works, right? Otherwise, we would fall under the impression that's through our good works. It's through our own willpower, our good intentions that we're able to do this. But 10 chapters later in the book of Revelation, the word tells us how they overcame. It was not by their works. It was not by their good intentions, not by trying harder, not by clever church strategies. It was by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Revelation chapter 12 describes a church that has been rid of all her idols, of all her compromise, to the point where they have laid down their lives. The work of the blood of a lamb has redeemed, restored, purchased, empowered, cleansed, and healed this church. And in response, their testimony is a life that trumpets the worth of Christ. It's a life that declares to a dying world that more important than my career more important than my comfort and, and whether I feel inconvenienced or not, whether I feel offended or embittered or not, more important than me getting my own way and me going uh, through my life with my own plans, more important than even my own life is the love of Christ that has ransomed me. Even unto death I will love him. That's what Revelation 12 prophesizes. A church that has laid down her life rid herself of all her idols, and they did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death, even through persecution, even through hardship and trial and sword. He is still worthy. That was the word of their testimony. I don't know about you guys, but when it comes to me, I love my life so much that I'm not willing to go through discomfort, let alone death, right? let alone death. Like, I am naturally so centered in my plans and my destiny and my calling and where God is leading me. I'm so naturally self-centered and self-focused that I drown and I, I like suffocate out this love for the Lord. I suffocate out this wholeheartedness, this focus, this I don't know, this perseverance to just simply love the Lord. And I felt that even today, earlier today, when Brian was leading us through worship today, you know that song that we ended with, like, I just want to be where you are. And, and for me, like, that was just ministering to me because that's what it boils down to, right? Like, yes, we want these things to work out well. As a board member and as an elder, I can tell you, yes, these details matter. They matter tremendously. How are we going to accommodate 120 people in this place? How are we going to make sure that transition works out well? 
How are we going to make sure that everybody's reached out to and feels loved and feels welcome? But when push comes to shove, at the very, very bottom of all these things, like we just want to do what God is leading us to do. We just want to be where he is. We want to be following where he leads. And that's more than enough for us. That's the beauty of this season, that all these things are being shaken and all these things are up in the air and they're uncertain. But one thing that is going to ground you, one thing that is going to lead you and make and help you make your way through this season is that the first things will become first. The important things are going to be foundational. All the other things are going to become secondary. They're important, yes, but they're not primary. This is the gift of the season. God is shaking everything to bring us to the point where we say, God, you know, I don't really know if these things are going to pan out. I don't know what things will look like at the end of this year or even next year. Like, who knows? All these things are out of our control. All these things are out of our control. We cannot control any of these things. But one thing, one thing I want is just to have you, and I want that to be enough. I want Jesus to be sufficient. I want Jesus to be sufficient. I believe that's how we will overcome this season. If we root ourselves in that truth, I just keep hearing the Lord asking me throughout this season, am I enough for you? Am I enough for you? When I feel anxiety gripping my heart, I feel God asking, all right, I understand that you're feeling very anxious, but am I not enough for you right now? Like, is my peace not enough for you right now? Is my sureness, the sureness of my promises, is that not enough for you? I feel him just putting his finger on something that I need to settle in my heart before I move on to the next season. And that is that the Lord has to be sufficient. So to him who overcomes, to him who overcomes, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. After all that, you think what we get is just a tree. Like that's, that's all we get, like really. <laughs> After all that, that's all we get. We get this tree. Great. <laughs> all right, so let me give you a little bit of background, right? It's not, just any, it's not just any tree. It's not just any tree. Okay. So the first time we ever see this tree of life, right, is in Genesis chapter 2, right? Genesis chapter 2, it talks about, Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east of Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. And the Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Sometimes we focus, when we're talking about the Garden of Eden, we focus on the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, but also at the epicenter of this garden that symbolizes the communing, the perfect companionship between God and man before the fall is also the tree of life, the tree of life. So we're not just talking about any tree. This is a tree that reminds us that there was a time when God walked with man in the cool of the day, when there was unbroken communion. There was a oneness in heart and in soul. It speaks of a healing and a reclaiming of everything that was broken beyond repair. It speaks of perfect communion without disruption nor agenda. It talks about oneness between God and man. And this is not the only time where we see the tree of life. We see it once again at the very end of the Bible, the last chapter of the Bible, Revelations chapter 22. It says, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, down the middle of the great street of the city. 
And on each side of the river stood the tree of life. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. They will see his face. And his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. And they will reign forever and ever. This last chapter of the Bible, it talks about the new heavens and new earth where we will see the tree of life once again. It is the culmination of all things. The end that was prophesied from the beginning, the future that awaits the church, a future where we do not even need the sun because the glory of the Lord will be in our midst. And his name will be on our foreheads. We will be with our God. We will be his people. And we will be with him forever and ever. And the one determining factor on which all of this hinges for the Ephesian church is whether they return to their first love. This is the reward awaiting those churches who heed what the Spirit is saying. This is what awaits us if we heed what the Spirit is saying in this hour. Now, before you feel really burdened, before you feel like, oh, man, this is too big of a, of a struggle. How am I going to get my, my heart on fire for the Lord? Like, what am I supposed to do? Just do it? Like, like what, do you, what, so what do you do? What do you do? How do you fix this? You know, that begs the question. So how do you do it? You cannot muster up love. You cannot fabricate emotion. You either feel it or you don't. But this is one encouragement that I have for you today. This comes from 1 John 4. And the, the only reason we love is because he first loved us. We have to start there. Otherwise, it's only a matter of time before we, for, before we fall into works, into just trying harder. Man, you feel we just got to try harder. We're just going to try to just stay on fire for the Lord. That's not how we fix this. We start out from the confidence and the fact that God loves us, and he loves us tremendously. I've been talking to so many pastors just over the, the course of the last few months, and when we talk, we naturally end up talking about what we feel he's going through. And for a lot of them, you know, yeah, they're like, oh, man, we really feel for you guys, really praying for you guys. I think you guys are going through a really hard time. You know, God bless you. The grace of the Lord be upon you. You know, they'll do that. But then there's certain people that I talk to where, like, after talking with them, I feel like, man, I don't know why God loves this church, but he just loves this church. There'll be people that I talk to who, like, with tears in their eyes, they'll be like, I believe I believe in the calling that you guys have as a church. I believe that no amount of sin and no amount of unhealth, no amount of like, man, maybe we did take the wrong turn somewhere along the way, but I believe that there's a future that is bright for you guys. As I feel that over and over again as, as I talk to these pastors, and I come away from these conversations thinking, like, I don't know why God loves this church, but he just does. He saw something in this church perhaps years ago. There was, like, a sincere, honest desire to love the Lord. There was this, like, part of us that was like, I don't care if we have to go up that hill. <laughs> like, I don't care if we meet, like, five times a week. I don't care if our sermons go for two, three hours. You know, like, man, I just want to love the Lord. I want my life to just burn, you know, for his glory. There was just this, like, zeal, and it wasn't, it wasn't just emotion. Like, there's something there. There's something really precious about this church, and God has not forgotten. God has not forgotten. He loves his church. 
And as I'm reminded of that, as I'm reminded of his faithfulness, how like he could have just taken away the lampstand, you know, at any point. At this point last year, he could have been like, you know what, you guys had your chance, just take away the lampstand. He could have done that. And yet here we are a year later, and I feel like the Lord is giving us an opportunity to turn to him again. I don't know why we get the second chance. So many churches don't get this opportunity, but somehow he's just extending this invitation to us right now. And it boggles my mind because we have done nothing to deserve it. It's like, why? We could just shut this down, you know? Just move on to the next church. We had our chance. We did so many things to grieve you, Holy Spirit, and yet you're giving us an opportunity to turn. And so I don't understand why, but all I know is that we are being given an opportunity. This is a window of opportunity we've been given to find our way back to where we need to be. And as we anchor ourselves in that love, that God has for us, his faithfulness toward us. We can stand firm. We can have confidence in what lies ahead for us. Romans 8, it says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But know in all these things we are more than conquerors, through him who loved us. For I'm convinced that neither death nor life, neither angel nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Nothing can separate us from the love of Christ and his faithfulness to us. So it's, I feel like Going back to the passage in Revelation 2, this is what I feel God's saying to the Ephesian church and also to us. I feel him saying, Ephesus, you feel invincible right now. You feel like nothing can stop you, but there's an infection, a virus that you're incubating right now, and once it's full-blown, it will eat you from the inside out. It will make this thing that looks unstoppable, it will make it implode. This thing that you have, right now, you feel like it's going to go on and on and on until I return. Nothing can stop you guys. But if there's one thing, one thing that will determine your trajectory is whether you choose to go back to your first love or you don't. He says, you feel like nothing can stop you, but trust me, I see ahead. I see there's going to be persecutions, there's going to be transitions, invasions, decline, the erosion of time, and you will not make it just through your church programs. You're not going to make it through all of that just with good intentions and good spiritual discipline. It's going to take a lot more than that. You're going to need to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul, all your strength in order to make it through that. That's the one thing that will save you at that time. Your future hinges on this one thing, the burning lampstand of my spirit remaining with you hinges on this one thing, the first love. So I'd like to just end with a time of prayer for today.